Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. What a gift the human self is. It enables you to sense and reflect upon your own existence, examine the past and plan for the future, check certain impulses in order to reach for other aims, and conceptualize how others see you, allowing you to better connect with them. But my guest says, the blessing of the self also comes with a curse, one we need to get a handle on if we're to live flourishing lives. His name is Mark Leary. He's a professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience and the author of The Curse of the Self, Self-Awareness, Egotism, and the Quality of Human Life. Today on the show, Mark unpacks exactly what the self is and its vital benefits before delving into the downsides that also come with having the self. Mark then shares how people can make the most of the advantages of the self while mitigating its disadvantages, including the practice he most recommends for quieting the kinds of self-related thoughts and ego-driven behaviors that can make us miserable. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash self. All right, Mark Leary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate being here. So you are a psychologist who has spent a lot of time researching, thinking about, writing about the self or our sense of self. And uh, this is something I think a lot of, I think most people take for granted, the idea that they are a self, that they have a self. And I think if you'd ask most people on the street, like, what is the self? They'd be kind of hem and haw and be like, well, the self, the self is, the self is a self. So in, in psychology, how, how does psychology define the self? That is a great first question and a very important one, because the word self is one of the more problematic terms in psychology. It's used in lots of different ways. It's often very poorly defined. And ironically, given that I've studied this stuff for about 40 years now, I've argued that we should stop using the word self and use more precise terms. So it's hard to answer your question. People use it in a lot of different ways. When I think of the self, what I'm talking about is I'm thinking about the ability, the mental apparatus in our brain that allows people to think consciously about themselves. You you know, we have cognitive systems in our brain that do all kinds of thinking. We have systems that allow us to do math problems or to assess risks or make inferences about other people. Well, the self is just that mental system that allows us to be self-aware, to be able to think about ourselves consciously in very explicit and abstract and symbolic ways. So psychologists who study the self are interested in this system and how people think about themselves. And more importantly, from my standpoint, to study the consequences of those thoughts about ourselves for our emotions, our motives, and our behavior. Almost everything we do is affected to some extent by how we think about ourselves. So in general, the self is the thing that allows us to think about ourselves and to give us that sense of self that, that you mentioned. We can talk about that as we go. So, I mean, was Kierkegaard right? He, he said, famously said, the self is a relation that relates itself to itself. Did he kind of well, get it right? Yeah, to an extent, that's right. If you think about the self as sort of being the person, it's our ability as a person to relate to ourselves as a person. We can interact with other people. We can think about other people. We can have beliefs about other people. We can do that in a very odd way with ourselves. We have beliefs about ourselves. We talk to ourselves, have conversations with ourselves. So yes, a self is a person relating to him or herself. 
So there's some debate as to whether animals have a sense of self. There's some evidence that some animals do. The great apes can recognize themselves in the mirror. Elephants can recognize themselves in the mirror. But no species has a sense of self like humans do. It's something unique to us. So are there any theories as to why we developed a self? Are there any uh, adaptive qualities or advantage of it? Absolutely. I mean, it evolved for some reason. And the two primary explanations, and we don't know if these are true, one has to do with planning. Planning is so important to survival. Most animals just live in the moment. Just moment by moment, they're just responding to what's happening. They're not thinking about what can I do now that's going to make my life better a week from now. Planning allows us to do that. But planning allows us to be able to imagine ourselves in our own minds in order to do something now to improve life in the future. So one possibility is for planning. The other possibility is for interacting with other people that our interactions improve if we think about what we're doing, if we have social goals, if we can imagine what other people are thinking about us, so that we became more effective interacting with others to the extent we could think consciously about what we're doing. Those are the two main theories, but we really don't know. All right, so the, so the benefits of the self, in order, so you, one idea is that in order to plan for the future, you have to have an idea of yourself. And I think what psychologists, they call this the analog eye. Is that what it is? I think that's uh, The analog eye, yeah, is sort of the image you have of yourself in your mind. If you think about planning for retirement, let's say, you sort of imagine in your head this little image of you. What's that going to be like? You're thinking about it, and you can move that around in your mind, sometimes seeing it like you're watching a little movie. There you are sitting on the beach, sometimes seeing it through your own eyes. You're looking out at the beach in retirement. But you can sort of move this little avatar around in a very hazy, funny kind of way in order to plan for the future. Other times we just imagine there's something we have to do. I have to stop and get the laundry on the way home from work. But all planning for the future requires self-awareness. And if you you think about if your life's anything like mine, it's just nothing but a big list of plans. My to-do list is just crazy. And it's all based on my ability to project myself into the future. So that's one of the very important functions of being able to be self-aware. Well, another one too is decision-making. So you, ha- you make these plans and you have to make a decision and then self-control as well. In order to make decisions, you have to exercise, well, I'm, I'm going to do this and not that. And that requires a self. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, self-control requires a self. Decision-making not only requires me to think about the future or what will happen if I make this decision, Versus if I make that decision, but then I have to pull from a storehouse of information in my brain about myself and what I want to do and what my abilities are and how likely I am to be able to execute certain behaviors. And all of that requires self-awareness. Self-awareness also does a couple of other things. It allows us to imagine how other people perceive us. And if you think about how important that is in life, what a mess we would make out of our lives if we couldn't think about how other people are looking at us. I mean, the horrible things we would do and how we would act and how we would look and how we would smell if we couldn't imagine what other people thought. The self is involved in that. The only way I can think about what you think about me is to think about myself and then try to extrapolate somehow. So self-awareness is involved. Self-awareness is involved in introspection. Other animals have emotions and urges and goals but they don't seem to think about them consciously. You and I can think about, well, why do I want to move to this other town? How do I really feel about this person I'm romantically attached to? Why was I so angry in that meeting yesterday? We introspect 
on our emotions and motives and intentions. You can't do that without a self. And self-evaluation. So many of our decisions are based on our own view of ourselves and what our capabilities are and what we like and what we don't like. And to the extent we can figure that out, we can make better decisions and move forward with life. So self-evaluation is involved. So really, I think of five things that self-awareness does. It allows us to plan, to introspect, to evaluate ourselves, to figure out what other people think about us. And as you said, put all that together, it allows me to, at least within limits, control my own behavior. Because if you think about what self-control is, it's thinking about yourself in the future and thinking about what can I do now? Boy, I'd, I'd be happier in the future if I'd lose weight. I need to eat less. So I'm evaluating myself, I'm thinking about the future, and then I'm trying to talk to myself in order to keep myself out of the cookies every night. And all of that requires a self. I, I think what's really impressive, if you think about human civilization, the things that make human beings different than every other animal, things like we have philosophy, and we have religion, and we have government, and education, and science, and technology, and healthcare, every bit of that requires self-awareness. So I think the reason humans are so incredibly different in good and bad ways from other animals is that we have this capacity that allows us to plan and evaluate and control ourselves that other animals don't have. So those are the benefits of the self. And you wrote this book called The Curse of the Self where you focus on, well, there's some benefits, but there's always... Everything's a trade-off in life, right? There's sure. always trade trade-offs. But be, I want to talk about those trades before we do. Here's kind of another bigger question that might be hard to answer. Like where does the self come from? Like how do we how do we get this this self that's able to relate to itself? We have no idea. <laughs> because <laughs> okay. it's all tied up in big questions about consciousness. We are consciously aware of its, ourselves, but we're also consciously aware of our environments. Researchers don't even know what consciousness is. How is it that you can take a five-pound piece of meat, the brain in your head, and have it have personal experiences and emotions and thoughts and visual perceptions and hear things is a very fundamental question. I mean, for me, that is really, that's the most important question any science can answer at this moment to understand the sources of consciousness. Only when we understand that, then we can say, well, okay, we're conscious of all kinds of things. How is it that we, unlike most other animals, can be conscious of and think about ourselves? So, I mean, there's lots of theories. There's lots of speculation. It goes back hundreds of years in philosophy, people saying, how do people, how do human beings do this thing? But we really don't know. Don't have the slightest idea. Okay, so we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what makes why we have a self. Yes, or science. You know, science does. There's just theories from philosophy, and I'm sure religion has ideas of why what the self is or why it's there. And neuroscientists are working on it in terms of trying to understand what could be happening in neurons in the brain that would produce consciousness and self awareness. And you know, again, they're speculating, but nobody knows. All right. So there are benefits to having a self. It allows us to plan, allows us to make changes in our lives for the better. But there's also downsides. And one of the downsides you talk about is that having a self can distract us from the world around us. How so? What does that look like? Well, we talk to ourselves in our own heads an awful lot. Sometimes that's very beneficial. We have to sit down and plan. You know, We have to figure things out. 
But research suggests that the majority of the thinking that we do about ourselves is not beneficial. It's not actionable. It's just ruminating about things, worrying about things, just remembering things from the past. Well, that would be okay, except all of that chatter in our heads interferes with our ability to pay attention to the present situation. And we've all had that happen many times. Think about the talks that you've sat in or meetings you've been in where suddenly you realize you've lost track of what's going on because you've been wrapped up in your own thoughts about yourself. Or uh, you're supposed to be picking up the laundry on the way home from work. And you're so wrapped up thinking about the day and worrying about something that's happening on the job. that's It's not until you're pulling into your driveway where you go, dang, I was supposed to pick up the laundry. I, I found this when I had small children, is I often found that when I was playing with them, I was only playing like I was playing with them because my mind was somewhere else wrapped up in some, some problem I was thinking about. So these self-thoughts are distracting. Ideally, what we would like to have is a self that turned on when we needed it. When we had to think consciously about ourselves, it would turn on and we'd use it. Then it would turn off again and be in standby mode until we needed it again. But our self-thoughts don't work that way. We think about our way ourselves way too much. So if we're distracted by it, we're preoccupied by it, it makes us unhappy sometimes because we're sitting in a meeting thinking about the problem we had with our partner that morning at breakfast. And it's not doing any good for us at the moment. It's just making us miserable. We also know that thinking too much about yourself interferes with memory. You get so caught up in your own thoughts, you're not paying enough attention to what's going on at the moment to be able to encode that event. We have that happen a lot when we meet people for the first time. We're introduced to some stranger. And 30 seconds later, we don't know that person's name, even though we just learned it. Why? Don't we know it? Probably because we were thinking, well, what am I going to say? Who is this person? Oh, this is a nice looking person. Oh, I wonder if I can trust this person. Our mind is abuzz with self-related thoughts. In extreme cases, our minds are so abuzz that we really can't perform the behaviors we need to perform. We're so distracted. I mean, many of us, we're trying to work on something. We're at the computer, but we're ruminating about a problem a financial problem, a relationship problem, our kids, whatever. And we're so distracted, we're having trouble devoting our attention to the task we're on. We see that when people choke under pressure, when athletes choke in games. What's really happening? What's really happening is that their self-thoughts are interfering with those automatized behaviors they've learned so well. They can shoot that basketball great. But when they start thinking about their problems or how the game's going or, oh, my God, we're losing the game, those conscious self-thoughts can interfere. Or students experiencing test anxiety. When students have test anxiety, yeah, they're anxious and that's a problem. But the big problem is they say their mind goes blank. I was so nervous I couldn't think about the test. My mind went blank. Their mind didn't go blank at all. Their mind filled up with catastrophizing self-thoughts that made them unable to pull out the information they needed. So I, I had a student once who characterized this very well. Well, I, said, I, I would encourage your listeners, actually, to try for the next three minutes, if there's some place where they can safely do this, just sit down and say, I'm not going to think any thoughts about myself for three minutes. It's my brain. I can control it. I'm going to sit here and not think a single thought about myself for three minutes. And I think they will be amazed if they've never tried that. 
that they can't do it. You can't get past 15 seconds. And then you think about the thought and, oh, I wasn't supposed to think that thought. I let me try it again. And it's just a cacophony of shatter. I had a student say, after I asked my students to try that for three minutes, she said, I didn't realize how much my brain thinks without my permission, which I think really captures it beautifully. Yes, your brain thinks without your permission and it's distracting and preoccupying. Well, that's, a, that's a tough thing to do because you have to like use the self to not think about the self, which is like yes. fighting fire <laughs> with fire. That is, is, that's exactly right. Exactly right. It's a problem and it does impede the quality of, of our lives by interfering with, with what we're trying to do. And another way that thinking about the self or the self can get can make our lives you know distract us and make life harder is uh, insomnia is often just the self thinking that I can't sleep this is a problem why can't I sleep now, I'm sure you know cats don't think oh man I can't sleep they just no they don't even think about it but we we make <laughs> the problem right. worse by thinking about the fact that we can't sleep perfect example yeah why do we lie awake at night it starts out thinking about the day, thinking about problems, maybe just ruminating. Sometimes they're not even problems, might be something positive. I've got to decide tomorrow if I'm going to go vacation in this location or that location. That's not a problem, but that's me lying awake at night trying to make a decision with these self-relevant thoughts. Then, as you say, it turns from staying awake because those kinds of thoughts are intruding to thoughts coming in about the fact that I got to go to sleep. I got a busy day tomorrow. Why can't I go to sleep? What's wrong with me? You got to relax. And, you know, the the old classic advice for insomnia is count sheep. Well, that's cliche, but the general idea is if you really could count sheep and stay focused on counting sheep, it would crowd out all of those self-relevant thoughts. Now, that's hard because the self-thoughts are more powerful than the images of sheep jumping over a fence or something. But the general idea is if you can start thinking about something neutral, not self-relevant, then you'll quiet down all that self-chatter and go to sleep. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right. So besides distracting us from the world beyond our head, the self can also distort the way we see reality. How so? Well, these thoughts we have about ourselves have content of various kinds. And one thing we know is that our thoughts about ourselves are not necessarily reality. They're just inferences or hypotheses, which means that when we base our behavior and our decisions and our emotions on our beliefs and our thoughts about ourselves, those beliefs and thoughts about ourselves are sometimes wrong. Now, if they were just sort of randomly wrong, that that would be sort of a problem. That means we're not being accurate in our our self-perceptions. But we know that our self-thoughts tend to be biased in a favorable direction, and that shouldn't surprise anybody. (laughs) When you ask people to rate, you give them a list of characteristics and abilities, and you ask them, do you think you're below average on this characteristic or average or above average on this characteristic? Things like, how good of a driver are you? Are you below average or above average as a driver? As a lover, are you below average or above average? Are you more moral than average or less moral than average than the average person? So we're asking people to rate themselves compared to everybody else on these positive and negative characteristics. Well, if people knew the truth, half the people would say I'm below average and half the people would say they're above average. That's the way averages work. Half the people are below and half the people 
people are above in some normal distribution of driving ability. But that's not what happens. What happens is on almost all characteristics, 70 to 80% of people say that they're above average. When it comes to being a good employee, if you ask people in your organization, you think you're above average as an employee or below average as an employee? Again, if people really knew the answer, if a big voice came out of the sky and told you the truth, half the people would say they were below average. Only 13% of people say they're below average at work. We have this strong bias to perceive ourselves too positively. And that creates all kinds of problems. It creates problems in our decision-making. We're making decisions based upon false assumptions about how good we are at things. And that's not good. It creates conflicts with other people because if you think you're doing better than most other people, you rightfully feel entitled to higher salaries or more respect or more compliments. But if we're overestimating how good we are at things, then we're not going to get as much pay or attention or respect or deference as we think we deserve and we're going to be disgruntled by. So uh, this better than average effect is so robust. I did a study a few years ago where I asked a very large sample. I said, I, I want you to think of all the disagreements you have with other people. It could be trivial disagreements about unimportant things or, or major disagreements. In what percentage of those disagreements you have with other people, do you think that you are the one who's correct? And again, the average person, the average should be 50%. Now, some people may, may be more correct than others, but if a disagreement has one wrong person or one right person, then on average, the average person should be right half the time. That's not what you get. The average person thinks that they are right about two-thirds of the time. Well, that creates a lot of conflict when we disagree with other people. We think we are more correct than we statistically and logically can be. And so the overpositivity of our self-thoughts create a number of problems in our lives, and there's not much we can do about it except realize however you feel about yourself, it's probably too positive. <laughs> I know that's kind of depressing and demoralizing. Even if you say, I'm not above average, I'm below average, chances are you're probably even more below average than you think you are. We just have this tremendous tendency to self-enhance. All right, so we have this bias to think that we're awesome. And besides thinking already that we're great, we also evaluate events in our lives that happen to us in a positive light, typically. So if we get a... I don't know, if if a project turns out great that we were working on, we think, well, that was that was mostly me. And everyone else, yeah, they didn't really do anything on that project. It was it was me. Probably not the case. Or if something, but here's the the flip side is if something, if it turns out poorly, what we do is like, well, that wasn't my fault. It was like everyone else is a bunch of dum-dums and um I I did everything right and it's their fault. Absolutely. Those are called self-serving attributions the attributions, the explanations we make for event, events in our lives are very self-serving. You're right. We take more credit for the positive things and less credit for the negative things than, than we should. And again, that creates conflict among people because we have disagreements about who was responsible for this, this argument that you had with your partner this morning. It was whose fault was it? I don't know, but it wasn't mine. <laughs> so uh, yeah, self-serving attributions are a problem as well. So another way the self can make us miserable and be a curse is that it can exacerbate negative emotions like sadness and worry. I think there's research to suggest that animals have emotions like fear 
they experience that, but they don't, they don't, they don't think about their fear. So what does the ability to think about our emotions, how does that make them like worse? We conjure emotions on our own that have nothing to do with our situations. I like you bringing up the animals there because yes, animals have emotions. They have negative emotions when there are threats or challenges in their environment at the moment. And they have positive emotions when good things are happening, benefits and opportunities. That happens with us as well. But we can conjure up, we create so many emotions for ourselves by just how we think about ourselves and our lives. Nothing has to be happening. I can be having a perfectly nice evening, sitting, watching television, relaxing. My life at the moment is fine. And I can make myself miserable replaying that argument I had with my boss a week ago or worrying about the medical procedure I have to have two weeks from now or starting to think about my retirement account. We create an awful lot of negative emotions in ourselves, sadness, anger, anxiety in particular, worrying about things that we don't have any control over, but we sit and worry. And you're right, the animals aren't doing that. You don't get the sense that the owl sleeping in its tree is worried about what it's going to do tomorrow, what might happen to it. Now, let me point out, sometimes those negative emotions we create for ourselves can be beneficial. That worrying about that thing I worry that I've got some weird symptoms here. Well, that may motivate us to go to the doctor. So sometimes our negative emotions we create are actionable. There's something we can do about them. And there, they're motivational, and that's fine. The vast majority of times when you make yourself feel badly, it's not actionable. You're just feeling badly, and it's not improving the quality of your life at all. So a lot of human unhappiness is generated by the way we think about ourselves and our lives and has nothing to do with the situation we're in at the moment. Well, a big emotion that people experience that can really get in the way of having a, a flourishing life uh, that's caused directly by the self is social anxiety, right? It's like this social anxiety is caused by you thinking too much about how you are engaging in that social interaction. So, so you're just thinking about yourself and as a result, it just makes you anxious and want to avoid social interactions completely. Exactly. You nailed it. Social anxiety is me worrying about how I'm coming across to other people. I've got to give that talk tomorrow and I'm worried about it and anxious. Got to get up in front of the audience or I'm meeting new people or I'm going on a job interview or a date with someone for the first time and I'm upset and anxious and ruminating about it. And that's solely my concerns with what the other people will think. And again, there's nothing wrong with being concerned with making a good impression. That's important for the quality of our lives, too. But there's a big downside if it makes you so anxious that you're terrified when you have to get up and give the talk or you have to go in for the job interview and you've created that in your own mind. Absolutely. And the other thing, the self just makes these problems worse. Okay. The self can conjure up, we have these emotions and then we start ruminating on them. It makes it worse, right? So we think, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm worried about this event that's about to happen. So you start thinking coming up and you start worrying more. But then yourself can also be like, why are you worrying about this? You're such a dumb dumb. Like I'm, you know, and, and so you just make things even worse. You start beating yourself up for like the self having a, an improper response to your emotions. Exactly, and that's a that's that introspection function I was talking about. We analyze ourselves and we get upset at ourselves because we're not as happy as we should be, or we're more anxious than we should be. We beat ourselves up and get depressed about the fact we're depressed. 
know, life's tough enough. There are real challenges we all have to live with that create anxiety and sadness and anger and other negative emotions. Those are real things. There's nothing wrong with that. The sad thing is that all of us heap a whole bunch of stuff on top of that that's not necessary, and we created it. And again, if we had a switch and could could turn off all of this self-reflection, we could shut down that part of our misery. And, and when I think about things that upset me, most of them are in my own head. It's, you know, I, it's not that I'm confronting a problem at the moment. It's in my head. Well, you highlight some research that can show how introspection can mess up relationships or, you know, harm relationships. So this idea, you know, you want to have like evaluate your relationship with a significant other. And then you do this quiz, for example, and it's like, what, how would you rate your significant other on X trait? You never thought about that trait before. You were attracted to your partner for some other reason. It wasn't that trait. But then you realize, wait, that my partner, my wife doesn't have that trait. I don't know. I don't, maybe we don't have a good relationship. But if you hadn't even thought about it, it wouldn't have been a problem. Yeah, there's great research on the downsides of introspection. They've shown it with relationships. They have shown it with people's ratings of the tastes of food. How people taste jams and, and rate how it tastes and why they like it or don't like it changes their perceptions of how good the jam is. What's happening, I think, is so many of our reactions to things, our relationships, Why are we attracted to the person we're attracted to? There's a zillion possible reasons. We are only conscious of some of those things. A lot of it's happening below the level of awareness. We don't know why we were attracted to that person. Why does this jam taste good? I don't know. It just tastes good. When you take something that's automatic, like the fact we like one person or we like this jam, and you try to make it conscious and think deliberately about it and introspect on it, you, you can start to focus on things, as you said, that were actually somewhat irrelevant in our attraction to the person initially. But once we start thinking about it, that can actually modify how we think about the person or the jam or something else. So, you know, if you take it too far, it sounds like you're saying, well, don't introspect. Don't try to think about why you feel the way that you feel. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a potential downside. A lot of our reactions are automatic, and if we try to think about them consciously, we're going to get it wrong in terms of why. We just don't know why we like or don't like certain things. We'll come up with reasons. We'll explain it, and they seem right, but are those the real reasons why we like our partner? Is that the real reason this jam tastes good? If we're honest with ourselves, we really don't know. All right. So we, the self has benefits, but also comes with downsides. And some of these downsides, these, these negative aspects of the self can become so overwhelming for people that they try to escape the self. I think Roy Baumeister wrote a book a long time ago called Escaping the Self, where he makes the case that things like alcoholism, extreme sports, addiction, there are ways to sort of quiet the self down. How, how do we think those things would quiet the self down, but actually make us more miserable? Well, we all do things every day to try to quiet the self chatter down. We don't consciously think about it that way. Usually it's not that we sit down to watch television and say, hey, I need to think less about my problems, so I'm going to lose myself in mindless television. But part of the appeal of leisure activities is that it does get us less focused on ourselves. Watching mindless television, television, watching sports, playing sports, socializing with other people, going shopping, sex, things that take our minds off of ourselves. 
Now, all of those activities may be pleasurable in their own right. If you're playing sports or enjoying a television show or socializing, yes, they're pleasurable in their own right. But part of the pleasure comes from the fact that they're taking me away from thinking about my, my problems. Yeah. Research on alcohol says one of the things that it does, it sort of quiets the self. You become less self-aware, right? And so that's why yes. people tend to, the little more social, they say things they otherwise wouldn't have said because like the, the self is basically, I don't know, taking a break a little bit when the alcohol gets into your brain. Absolutely true. I mean, these, these general ways we all do sort of quiet the self on a daily basis doesn't work for everybody. So alcohol and drugs is the big dysfunctional way to do that. Uh, alcohol does two things. One, it's a central ne- nervous system depressant. So it does relax you. Even if it doesn't change your self-thoughts, it does produce a little bit more relaxation. But there are studies that show that people think less about themselves when they drink in general. There are exceptions to that. One thing you, you mentioned in the book too is that religion and philosophy have been aware about this idea of the problems of the self, and they've tried to figure out ways to mitigate the curse of the self. How have they done that? Religion sort of feeds into the self in two ways. One is religion really sort of does two things. Religions differ a lot, but it has two functions. One is to provide answers to the big existential questions. How did all this get here? Who am I? How do I relate to the universe? What happens after I die? And religions in different ways provide some guidance, some hints, some answers to those kinds of questions. Well, those questions are all self-generated. All those other animals out there in the woods are not sitting around wondering about how the universe was created or what's going to happen after they die. We do wonder about those things, and the uncertainty and the fear can be problematic for some people. Religion steps in to provide some tentative answers. The second thing that religion does related to itself is it provides a moral code. It says, here's the ways that you ought to treat each other. Here are the ways that you ought to behave. If you look at what most of those moral codes say, they involve not hurting other people. They involve not being selfish, not being too self-centered, treating other people the way you would like to be treated. So religious moral codes are ways to try to get people not to behave in an egocentric, selfish, self-centered kind of way. That if people weren't already self-centered. If people weren't selfish, we wouldn't need moral codes, right? Everybody would behave themselves and get along pretty well, and and that would work out fine. Now, the world religions approach the problem of the self in different ways. The Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, their approach to the problems created by the self, the self-centeredness and selfishness, is to provide this moral code and say, here are the rules you really need to follow. You need to become a new kind of person in one way or another, and different religions look at that differently, and behave in this way in order to be a good person. The Eastern religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, as well as a lot of indigenous religions, they have moral codes, but they focus more on getting to the root of the problem in terms of quieting down the self, removing some of the curse of the self, making people less self-preoccupied through meditation, through rituals, through spiritually related dancing. Quiet down all of this stuff about yourself, and you're going to have a happier and healthier and better life and sort of naturally be better without having to just tell you to behave in certain ways. 
But both sets of religions, Western and Eastern, are both coming at the problem that too much self-thought, too much egotism, too much self-awareness is a problem for people personally, and it's a problem for how people treat other people. Okay, so the self has benefits. There are downsides, and you're not advocating that we just kind of become unself-aware because that would cause lots not of problems enough. in our life. So what does your, the research say about what we can do to quiet the curse of the self? So we get like the benefits of the self, which is that planning, decision-making, self-evaluation while mitigating the downsides. Because I imagine you can't eliminate the downsides completely. That's just, that just comes with having a self. You're going to have those downsides. I think so. But I think you can improve the quality of people's lives by minimizing them, by mitigating them and cutting them down by 20 or 30% would create a real improvement in the quality of life. Research suggests a number of things, but they tend to fall into two or three large categories. If you're trying to say, how do I minimize the impact of my self-thoughts on the quality of my life and how I affect the world? The first is find some way to reduce the sheer amount of self-thoughts you have to cut back on the frequency of self-related thoughts, because many of them are useless. They're making you miserable. They're creating conflicts with other people. They're being egotistical. How can we shave that back? And the most tried and true way is to learn to meditate. And I realize a lot of people look at meditation askance as something really weird. It can be tied up in some some odd things, (laughs) but Basically, it comes down to simply a psychological training tool that it's a way to quiet down the degree to which you are thinking about yourself and to not take your self-thoughts quite so seriously. And there are plenty of things on the internet. There are classes in meditation. There's different brands of meditation. And I know a lot of people sort of feel like it's, well, it's associated with spirituality and religion and some new age kinds of ideas. And it often is, but it doesn't have to be. It can be purely a mental psychological training tool focused only on trying to diminish the degree to which you think about yourself. And people who go through meditation classes and practice regularly, it's clear that they think less about themselves. They still get tangled up in all of the stuff we've been talking about. You're right. The curse of the self does not go away, but they do it less and they report being more relaxed and more happy and more balanced because they don't have all of that chatter going on. So the first thing is to just try to slow down the pace at which you think about yourself on a daily basis. The second is when you do think about yourself, don't trust those thoughts quite as much as you probably do. I call this ego skepticism. We know that our thoughts are often biased. We often we know that our thoughts about ourselves are incomplete. A lot of the things that affect our behavior are below the level of awareness. We don't think about them. We can't think about them. So don't take your thoughts quite so seriously. They are hunches, hints, hypotheses that are often true, and they guide your behavior in fruitful directions, but they're often wrong or incomplete. So if you you just sort of don't take your own thoughts quite so seriously and use them for guidance, then I think you're less likely to fall into some of these traps we're talking about. You're less likely to be ego defensive. You're less likely to make bad judgments based upon the fact you perceive yourself too positively. And if you can do each of those things a little bit, and I don't want to hold out too much hope you can do them a lot because we're not designed that way. 
We were not designed with a brain to live in the environment we've created. That's, that's the irony of all of this. We evolved with a brain that works really, really well if you're a hunter-gatherer living in a tribe of about 30 people. We don't live that way anymore. We've created a civilization and a global economy where we just have to deal with too many people and too many issues and too many choices. I am often amazed we do as well as we do. We have a lot of dysfunction as a species, no question. But the fact that we can live in an environment that's so different from the one that our brain was designed to live in is pretty remarkable. Biologists tell us that our brain is not fundamentally different than it was 50,000 years ago during the Stone Age, but yet it's coping with all of this. So if we just tell ourselves we've got to do certain things to promote our ability to cope with our current lives that we've created, and one of those things is to become a little less self-focused, less egoic, less egotistical, and to lower that curse of the self. Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. Is, is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? I guess just really two places. One is the book, The Curse of the Self. I guess it's probably on, still on Amazon. And my blog at psychologytoday.com. Um, the blog that I have there is, is called Toward a Less Egoic World. The idea being if ego and self and identity create all of these problems, what steps can we take to be less egoic and create a less egoic world and lower some of these problems? And I don't know there's maybe 15 posts on there. I, I try to keep up with it every month or so. But that's psychologytoday.com. People can Google my name, L-E-A-R-Y, or look for Toward a Less Egoic World. And that will, you know, those are written for the average person with the implications, what do we do to minimize the curse of the self? Mark Leary, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. My guest today is Mark Leary. He is the author of the book, The Curse of the Self, Self-Awareness, Egotism, and the Quality of Human Life. It's available on amazon.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash self, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>